morning, Chili Bible. Uh, it is indeed a privilege, as Stephen said, to serve among you as uh, one of your pastors. We are very blessed to be here with our families and to um, pursue Christ alongside you. This is, a, this is a great place to be as a pastor, and I hope as a member, uh, because we are, um, we are a family here, and I enjoy having you all as brothers and sisters, and in some cases, adopted moms and dads, uh, and, um, and I, I hope you enjoy being part of Chili Bible as well. This is our second week looking at conflict resolution and peacemaking. And this is a sensitive topic for a lot of people, but it's also an area which I believe is absolutely essential to our spiritual growth and life and maturity. And so if you're going to grow in Christ, one of the things you're going to have to learn how to do is to get along with one another, right? Not just in the body of Christ, but in, uh, in your workplace, uh, with your family, uh, with people you drive along the road with, you're going to have to learn how to get along. Uh, and so uh, they say the last part of a man to convert is his right foot. Um, but we're going to we're going to uh, ask the Holy Spirit to lead us here this morning as we get into this area. And so let's pray together, shall we? Uh, God, our heavenly Father, we confess that since we are fallen people who are redeemed by the grace of God, we yet have some areas where we really struggle. And one of the areas is in getting along with one another and making peace and uh, coming to reconciliation. Father, we thank you that Jesus has made reconciliation between us and you so that we might make reconciliation between one another. And Father, we... uh, We thank you for the great gift of Jesus, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us this morning and lead us as we talk about some sensitive areas of life, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, as I said last week, uh, there are two great times to talk about conflict, uh, just as there are two great times to go fishing. Uh, There are two great times to, uh, to talk about conflict when you are in it and when you are not. And since we are not at this moment uh, in conflict as a church, it's a good time for us to talk about this. And I want to talk just first of all about what I mean by being a peacemaker. That's our goal, is to be peacemakers in our relationships. A peacemaker is someone who is actively pursuing reconciliation, who has both a willingness to confront in a loving way and a willingness to repent or forgive as the situation requires. Because oftentimes, both forgiveness and repentance are needed from both parties in a conflict. Amen? And so, a peacemaker is a person Paul describes in Ephesians 4, 15, and Ephesians 4 verse 15, and verse 25 and 26. Remember these? We looked at them last week. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, 
Uh, we want to become that type of person, one who is able to speak the truth in love, one who does not sin in his or her anger, one who does not let things fester so that Satan has no opportunity for destruction. And that is the goal that Christ sets before us in our conflicts with each other. However, we are not only indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we have, as we saw last week, uh, another nature within us, our old man, our old nature, our flesh, and it wrestles against our spirits within us. And sometimes we can, therefore, operate in a way in solving conflict which is not peacemaking but peace-destroying. And I want to look at four ways, four sinful ways that we try to solve conflict here this morning. In fact, there are, there are often, they often become kind of our characteristic ways of approaching conflict. They're all sinful, they're all wrong, but nevertheless, a lot of times being able to solve an issue, a lot of times starts with recognizing where you tend to screw it up. Uh, if you don't know where you went wrong, it's hard to get right. Amen? And so we're going to look at these, and hopefully one of these, or more than one, will look at you in the mirror and you'll go, that's me. That's what I do. I'll go ahead and rat myself out when we get there on which one is me, uh, so that you can all go on record and understand where your pastor is coming from when he is in the flesh. Uh, but we're going to start with the first one. The first one is the passive responder. The passive responder. And we'll define him this way or her this way. To try to make conflict go away, this person tends to surrender self, surrender the truth, and surrender in relationships. Let me clarify what that means. A passive responder tends to keep quiet and show no outward or visible reaction to negative words or actions. They tend to believe that all conflict is wrong. And so, in every circumstance, they try to just quietly endure. Passive responders believe in their heart of hearts that being really loving and merciful means you never confront anyone about anything ever. And they don't want to go to any kind of lengths. In fact, they go to great lengths to avoid expressing anger or speaking the truth to anyone about the hurt that they are causing them. But here's the thing. Love does not mean allowing people to continue hurting you. It doesn't mean that. A lot of people think that it does, but it doesn't mean that. In fact... If you ignore the truth by passively submitting to whatever sin somebody might commit, rather than confronting him or her in love, that ultimately what you're doing is dishonest. And it's ultimately unloving because it ignores not only what would be best for you, but what would be best for that person. That they would grow and change. And worse, sometimes... Passivity, sometimes passive responders mask what they're doing as Christian maturity, when in reality, it's the enablement of sin. It enables the perpetuation of evil. And so they often find themselves as the enablers of addicts and abusers, as they just roll over in the face of evil. 
So here are some biblical examples I want to give you. I want to not just talk in terms of what I think. I want to speak in terms of what the Scripture says. So if you've got your Bible, uh, flip over to the book of Leviticus. This is probably the unmarked portion of your Bible. Leviticus. Not too many quiet times conducted here, but nevertheless, good stuff here in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, this is what it says. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Let me translate that for you. If you know of something evil that has been done and you don't speak up, you're a participant in sin. You're a participant in enabling it to continue. It isn't godly to allow sin to persist. It needs to be be confronted in a loving way, certainly, but confronted nonetheless. Uh, Let me go over to uh, another one. Um, A lot of times, uh, passive responders not only keep silent, they also go into fear as a natural reaction. Fear of what might happen, fear of what someone might think. Uh, fear of losing the relationship, and they allow that to control their responses. But here's what Jesus says, verse 27 of chapter 14 of Matthew. He says, Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus promises, remember, at the end of Matthew in chapter 28, to be with us every day to the very end of the age. And so there's never a time when we cannot look at, look at the, our situation and think, uh, you know, well, Jesus is not with me here. No, Jesus tells us he's going to be with me in every circumstance. And so I can claim this word from him. Take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, On the flip side of the coin, when a passive responder is in conflict with somebody, often they go into what I call martyrdom. Maybe you've seen this, right? There's a lot of comedy on TV with Jewish mothers, right? And they're the martyr in every circumstance. Oh, I can see you don't love your mother. You know, I mean, this kind of thing, right? And this is how it goes, right? They're the suffering servant. They're the one who is enduring all the pain you're inflicting on them. I'm I'm the one who's being unfairly crucified, right? Um, When they are the one in sin, that's how a lot of times a passive responder will react, is that they are the one enduring suffering inflicted by you. Uh, Here's what 1 Peter has to say to that. This is the Apostle Peter. Uh, writing on suffering. So if you've got your Bible, this I'm sorry if you're doing a lot of flipping today. Uh, normally we don't do that, but I want to I want you to see this out of the out of the word here. First uh, Peter chapter two verses nineteen and twenty. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering while uh, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, if you suffer as a result of being an idiot or because you're a jerk, you deserve it. (laughs) 
And don't, don't act as if God is inflicting this on you. You are just simply reaping the consequences of your actions. What he does say, though, is, on the other hand, if you do suffer, make sure that you're suffering truly unjustly. That you're not just playing the martyr, that you really are suffering unjustly. Uh, second conflict style that's sinful that a lot of people engage in is the evasive responder. The evasive responder wants to avoid conflict. So to avoid conflict, this person tends to protect themselves, manipulate relationships, and twist the truth. They don't roll over. They dodge. They try to escape. They flee. Evasive responders are similar to passive ones in this respect, that they believe that all conflict is wrong and must be avoided. So they want to escape, divert, dodge, and shirk responsibility for any hurts or consequences that result from arguments or accusations or conflict. They don't want to admit that conflict exists between themselves and someone else, and so when that admission is unavoidable, what they will do is rationalize or spread rumors or blame others for it because they're more interested in escaping the discomfort and escaping the responsibility of pursuing reconciliation than they are in actually achieving reconciliation. And so when they're in conflict, evasive responders have a broad variety of responses. Sometimes they'll flee. They'll simply run away. We're in a fight. I don't know how to deal with that. And so I'm just going to check out. And they will run away. They'll end the friendship. They'll quit the job. They'll file for divorce. Uh, they'll leave the church. They'll do what Cain did in uh, Genesis chapter 4, and verse 16. Uh, if, you, if you go over there and look at that, uh, this is what the Scripture says Cain did. After he was confronted by the Lord for his evil, he did not repent. What he did instead was this. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, God confronted me for murdering my brother. He, put, he judged me for that. And so I'm just not going to be in a relationship with God anymore. I'm just going to leave. See ya. And off he went on his own to do his own thing. He fled from the presence of God. Uh, another thing that an evasive responder will do is they will downplay and deny. They will try to minimize the harm resulting from sin or claim that a problem is solved when it isn't. I read this in my quiet time this week. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, is speaking about the other prophets, the false prophets of God, uh, or claiming to be from God, who are speaking to the nation of Judah in his day, and they're all saying, oh, God's judgment's not really going to come. God's judgment's really not going to come. And this is what, this is what God says through Jeremiah in chapter 8, verse 11. It says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, or the NIV reads, they have dressed my people's injuries as though they were not serious. And they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
In other words, they're just saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. God's not really going to judge us for violating the covenant. And Jeremiah is the one guy out there going, yes, he is. Judgment is coming. Repent now while there's still time. And they're saying, no, it's not that bad. Just after another sacrifice at the temple, everything will be fine. And Jeremiah is saying, no, don't downplay what's happening. Don't deny what's coming. This is coming. But sometimes people like to evade. Evasives will also camouflage. They will smooth over sin by naming it something else and portraying sinful words or, or, or deeds as acceptable. Uh, they will cloak it in something else. They'll dress it up in another garb and try and make it sound not as bad. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about that. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. He says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will wander away from the truth. Turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Does that sound like anything that's going on today? That we don't call sin, sin anymore. We call it something else. We cloak it. We camouflage it. We give it a different name. And then we defend it and say, well, who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? And the answer is, I'm nobody. But Jesus says, But a lot of times, people who want to evade responsibility will cloak it. They'll camouflage it. Or this is what God says to Isaiah in chapter 5 on verse 20. This is in that great series of woes that he is pronouncing on all of the wicked people of Israel and Judah. He says, he says Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, there are people in the nation who are trying to do this. They're trying to camouflage and cloak their sin by calling it something else. And even totally inverting what God's standard is and saying, no, this is okay, and it's not. And I know that sometimes people in conflict will do the same thing. They'll go, well, you see... If you look at my actions in a certain light, well, then you will see that I'm exonerated. That's evasive. And it's sin. It's wrong. Call it what God calls it. Call it sin and repent and be healed. Amen? All right. Um, uh, let's move on. The, the third one is the defensive responder. To prove they are right, this person tends to protect self, manipulate relationships, and bend the truth. Let me repeat that. To prove they are right, the defensive responder tends to protect themselves, manipulate relationships, and bend the truth. 
And as I said, just so you know, your pastor is a real human being with a real flesh that he really does struggle with. This is me. Okay, so take notes in case you are curious. Uh, if I'm in the flesh and I'm solving an argument with somebody, this is how I'm going to try to solve it. Okay, defensive responders do not believe that conflict is wrong. Instead, they believe that conflict is about who is wrong, and it's not them. Um, defensive responders are concerned about protecting themselves from real or perceived criticism and accusations of wrongdoing and sin than they are in acknowledging personally uncomfortable truth. Defensive responders tend to be argumentative and persuasive and manipulative. They're usually outspoken in their opinions and may resort to extreme arguments to prove a point. You know, they'll go to the uh, one of their favorites is usually reductio ad absurdum, where you take something out to the logical conclusion and show that that's ridiculous and therefore you're in the right. Right? Um, and they'll also oftentimes seek out an expert. Sometimes I see these folks in counseling. They will come, they will tell me their half of the story, and they will say, what do you think, Pastor? And what they're doing is bringing me in to enlist me in their battle so, so that they now have me to use as a stick with which to beat the person they are in conflict. Well, Pastor Joe said that you were wrong. <laughs> By the way, I didn't tell him all the story, just the story that made me look good, right? Uh, you see that happen sometimes where they'll enlist an expert. And as a, as a general rule, defensive Responders are people with perfectionistic tendencies who resent attempts to point out the fact that they are not perfect. This is me. All right, let's move on. Uh, when they're in conflict, defensive responders often result to the following sinful strategies. Number one is to label themselves the anointed. Now, they won't maybe use that term but they'll claim special status or knowledge or authority or position or their spirituality puts them above correction. And so they'll say, a lot of sinful Christian men who are defensive responders will say this. Now, this is an idiot thing to say. Don't do this, men. I have done this. I have paid the, paid the freight on this for you in advance. So don't do this. Well, I'm the husband and... Mm, no, don't do that. Stupid idea. Okay, trust me on this. This is dumb. Don't do that. Or some women will do this one. I've seen this. Well, you know I'm the one of us who's more spiritually attuned. Oh, baby. And therefore, I'm more likely to be right. But here's, here's what the Lord says in Romans 3.10. Okay, this is a good one for us defensive people. Romans 3.10, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's a good word, not even one. There is one lamb who is spotless and clean, and it isn't you. Uh, another strategy is to be boastful. They can do this. When they're in conflict, 
They cite achievements or sacrifices or attributes unrelated to the circumstances that they're in conflict about. And so they will say, well, you know, I have sacrificed in XYZ ways, and therefore W over here doesn't really matter. Or I usually do the right thing in, in all these circumstances, and the fact that I screwed up here this one time doesn't eliminate all that, and so you should leave me alone. Uh, they'll start to try to place themselves beyond correction. Another one that they like is buck passing, where they will tend to blame other people, and I've even heard people do this, where they blame Satan for their own failures, their own sin, or they will bear false witness and make false accusations to avoid accepting blame. That's what Adam did, by the way, back in the garden. If you've got your Bible, go to Genesis 3, and let's look at this one. Okay. Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 12. Verse 11, God confronts the man. And he says, you know, Adam has been saying, well, we heard you in the garden and we were naked, so we ran and hid. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Now, Adam is a classic defensive responder. Verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And you notice where I appears in that sentence? At the very end. He first of all blames the woman. She's the subject of that sentence. And then he loops God in there to blame as well. And so he says, in other words, no, her fault, and by the way, your fault, and then last of all, my fault. And so in other words, God, if you had not screwed up in your plan and gave me that woman to start with, I would never have done this. (laughs) Right? Well, if you see my actions in a certain light, you'll understand that I can pass this off to someone else and make them responsible, and put me at the end of the tail on this. That's wrong. Does that cut any ice with God? Not so much. He still holds Adam responsible. And finally, uh, defensive responders tend to be pessimistic. They tend to assume the worst, to engage in negative interpretation about situations and people, and assume that any improvement is impossible. This is the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Uh, 1 Kings 19 happens just after 1 Kings 18. Revolutionary, I know. Uh, But in 1 Kings 18, there's this great scene of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and he calls down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice. and, And everybody praises God and says Yahweh is God and Yahweh is God and they get rid of all the prophets of Baal and and Asherah that are there and you think boy this is a fantastic victory but this one nasty lady Jezebel sends a message to Elijah and says you're not going to live out the day boy and having seen God send fire from heaven he breaks into a sweat over Queen Jezebel and he goes man I got to get out of here and so he cuts out 
across the desert and uh, goes through the wilderness, and he's, he's like, man, I've got I've to get to God somewhere, so I'm, I'm leaving. So um, pick up the story in verse 4. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father. He's fairly pessimistic about what's going to happen. What actually is going to happen is God is going to meet with him and he's going to display his glory and reveal himself in the most exquisite, powerful, personal way in the entire Old Testament. In this same chapter. And yet, Elijah is going, kill me now. Send me to glory. I'm done. And God's going, not yet. i got more for you to do. And it's important. And improvement is possible. And in fact, I've got a bunch of people who have not bowed down to Baal that are a remnant that I've kept for myself. Don't give up. Now, last but not least, there is everybody's favorite, the aggressive responder. Now, these, this is the, these are the people that everybody thinks they get to pick on. Because everybody immediately, when they see this response, think, well, that's obviously wrong. And it is. But guess what? All the rest of us are sinful in our responses, too. That's why I say four sinful responses. Not one sinful response and three kind of okay ones. No. Four sinful responses. All right? The aggressive responder does this. To control a conflict, this person tends to promote self sacrifice relationships, and force the truth. This is the, um, this is the kind of person that everybody else thinks is the, is the one who is sinful and abusive. Aggressive responders want to be in control. And so they will use emotional or spiritual, sometimes even physical force to make sure that they win. They want to be bold and forceful and assertive and dominant and direct and demanding and uncompromising in conflict. They want to win the fight more than they want to make peace in the relationship. And they will use whatever means are at their disposal. So they will fight even when it costs them financially. They will fight when it costs them professionally. They will fight when it costs them relationally. Uh, The aggressive responders' strategies for dealing with conflict include, one of their favorites is verbal humiliation, where they belittle the other person or try to subdue them through guilt or shaming. Uh, If you want a good example of this, go over to 1 Samuel. Turn back from 1 Kings to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20. And this is King Saul talking to his son, Jonathan. Jonathan and David have become friends. Jonathan, who is the crown prince of Israel at this time, knows that he is not going to one day become king because God has selected David as the next king. And nevertheless, Jonathan is still David's friend, but Saul is trying to get Jonathan to convince him He's trying to convince Jonathan to give up where David is. 
so that Saul can go kill him. And so this is what he says in verses um, in verse 30 and 31. Saul's anger, anger was kindled against Jonathan and said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me that he should surely die. Now that bit about son of a perverse and rebellious woman, that's a little harsher in Hebrew than it reads in English. And it means what you think it means. It's bad. He's basically calling Jonathan the son of a prostitute. He's trying to use guilt and shame to get what he wants. Verbal humiliation. Aggressive responders will also litigate. They will sue. They'll threaten legal action. I'll call my attorney and I'll take everything you have. Um, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He addresses this issue, which was going on in the Corinthian church, remember? It's a live thing. They had some aggressive responders, and when they were slighted, they didn't know how to deal with it right. So in verse 7, Paul says of chapter 6, he says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Christians don't take each other to court. They don't do that. But aggressive responders do. Uh, Last of all, aggressive responders will resort to sometimes assault and domination. They will force those who oppose them through physical or verbal violence, to do what they want. And this is what Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 23. Go to Matthew 23. He's talking, this is Jesus talking to the people of Israel. Verse 37, chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. The nation of Israel often put the prophets of God to death. They put Jesus to death through their leadership because he would not give the leaders of the nation the position and honor that they were, in their eyes, due. And he represented a threat to their power and their position. They would not have it. And they were not going to have some guy from Nazareth, of all places, claiming to be the Messiah as ruler over them. And some of you might be thinking at this point, well, this is thoroughly depressing, Pastor. Thank you. Thank you for showing me my sin right up close. Thanks a lot. Um, But here's the deal. I don't want to leave us all here wallowing in our sinful misery. 
Uh, I want to instead, in the few minutes we have left, lead us to the cross and the empty tomb, which are the only places from which we can receive forgiveness and redemption from all this stuff. Because looking at this is not very fun, honestly. It's kind of ugly. And to recognize yourself in the mirror of how you tend to handle things. There are five steps you need to take if you identify yourself doing one of these. Number one, you need to recognize your sin. Recognize it and label it by the right name, that it's sin. What I've been trying to do here all along is to help us all do that, to hold up a mirror from God's Word and help us all to recognize our sin and where it lies. Uh, David wrote in Psalm 32, 3 and 4, he said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When we don't recognize our sin, a lot of times it just sucks the life right out of us and, and makes us feel just crushed. And it sucks the life out of our relationships. So number one, we've got to recognize our sin and call it what it is. Number two, we need to repent of our sin. Repent means to turn around, to change your mind. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says it this way. He, says, he talks about repentance and he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, while worldly grief leads to death. So repentance means a change of mind. It means you're not just sorry you got caught. It means you're not sorry you're in conflict. It means you're not simply feeling bad about the fact that you did this, but it's sorrow that leads to change. Sorrow that leads to change, not to continuation in the same evil. Third step, confess. Now, some of these, remember, these are logical steps. These aren't, some of these happen simultaneously, or they ought to. Repentance and confession are connected together. But logically, the next thing is to confess your sin. And, and a verse every Christian ought to know is 1 John 1, 1.9. If you've not memorized it, you need to memorize it. It needs to be highlighted and like with a special tab in your Bible because you need this one every day, usually multiple times a day. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful to, and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that means is this, the word confess is the word homologeo, which you don't need to know, except in this aspect. It means literally to say the same thing. And so what you're doing when you're confessing is you're going before God and you're saying about your behavior or your thinking or your words what God says about it. And you're, you're leaving your team and joining his and saying, no, that is evil. That's wrong. I'm going to stop doing that and confessing and admitting this is wrong. By the way, three most beautiful words in the English language. Second most are, I love you. But the three most beautiful words in the English language are, I was wrong okay if you've been married very long at all you know that you like to hear i love you but when you hear i was wrong that is really great right 
Because there's healing in that. Then you can hear I love you in the right way. I was wrong. And to say that as you're confessing is a beautiful thing. I heard John Ortberg say one time that, and this stuck with me because it just convicted me so deeply. He said, one time where we say to God, I lied at work when I wanted to avoid trouble in X and so circumstance is worth a thousand variations of, well, God, I haven't been very honest. To name it and call it what it is is a very healthy thing. And then after that, be cleansed of your sin. And I love this verse. This is another one you ought to memorize and highlight and underline in your Bible. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our sin from us. When we, can, when we repent and confess, you know what happens to us? We are cleansed. Because of God's steadfast love, we are cleansed. And we can come, therefore, to the throne of grace, knowing that when we come and confess in repentance what we have done, that God will cleanse us and pull our sin away from us as far as east is from west. Knowing that we're going to be forgiven and accepted and loved. Last thing, walk. In newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Remember, one of the things Jesus says, remember the the gal who is caught in adultery in the act, John chapter 8? What's he tell her? Go and sin no more. In other words, the idea is, is not just that we change our mind, but that we change our ways. That when we recognize what we've done as sin and we confess it to God and we're cleansed of it, the idea is not that we go back to the same mud hole we were just in, but that we walk in newness of life. In fact, that's a phrase out of Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The idea is that God saves us not so that we can simply continue to sin, but God saves us and forgives us and redeems us and continues forgiving us so that we can live in the new way. Now, in weeks to come, we're going to talk about how to resolve conflict in a godly way. We've talked about all the ungodly ways today. But... The intention of all of this discussion is that we all might walk in newness of life. That I would not continue to be a defensive person when I'm confronted. That if you're maybe if you're an aggressive person, that you wouldn't continue to be that way. That if you're passive, that you would learn to speak the truth in love. That if you're evasive, that you would learn to stop fleeing and start standing and confronting and dealing with sin both in yourself and in other people, that we might have the kind of relationships that we all want. Nobody gets married thinking, you know, I can't wait until our first fight. 
That's not what you think. No one joins a church and thinks, boy, I can't wait until I really get sideways with somebody. That's not why you come. That's not why you get into relationships. We come because we want, we want connection and relationship and, and intimacy in our relationships with each other. We want to know and be known. And part of that involves solving issues. Amen? So let's walk in newness of life. That's what we've been promised. And we can claim that because of Christ. So let's pray.